You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. I think it's easy when you read the Bible to read it like you would read any other book and to look for the heroes and the villains. But that's not really the way the Bible was written to be read. The Bible tells one story. It is a rescue story. It's about how God rescues humanity and indeed the whole creation from evil and death. And the hero of that story is Jesus. And so as we read each part of the Bible, we need to understand how this part fits into the whole story. And that brings us to the strange little book of Esther, which we're we're looking at now. Jews and Christians have always tried to make Esther the heroine of the story. And if you go to Amazon and look up Bible studies or books on Esther, you'll read titles like The Esther Anointing, or Becoming a Woman of Prayer, Courage, and Influence, or It's Hard to Be a Woman, or becoming a woman of strength and dignity. But is Esther really the hero of the story? And was Esther really as virtuous as we would like to make her out to be? That, those are the kind of questions I want to look at this morning as we uh, look at Esther chapter 2. Let's pray, and I want to pray silently. The Scripture says that God speaks to us as we consider the Scriptures. So let's pray and ask God to uh, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Thank you, Father, for the word which performs your work in our lives. And we pray you'll be our teacher this morning. We pray that you will Speak to each of us in our hearts in the areas where we need to hear you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Esther is a narrative, our biblical history. And we read narratives differently than we read, say, poetry, like the Psalms. Or we we read the wisdom literature of of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Or we, we read... Uh, the letters from the apostles. In, in Bible history, God only gives us the information we need to understand what he wants us to know. And it's easy to miss what's there, or even worse, to read in what's not there. And so what I want to do this morning is, is kind of take you through a real simple way to read Bible history in order to get the true meaning of the text. And whenever you read narratives, there's three things you want to look at. First of all, you want to look at the setting. The setting tells where and when this story occurs, and that's important. And and then you want to look at the characters. Who is this about? And third, you want to look at the plot, what happens. And how does what happens here fit into what's happened before, what happens after, and then it fits into the whole story 
of the Bible. So that's what we're going to do with Esther chapter 2. Let's start with the setting and when and where this happens. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. This happens after the events of chapter 1, which Jeff talked on last week. Remember, Queen Vashti is deposed by King Ahasuerus because he's mad that she won't display her beauty before a, a room full of drunken people. And so he takes away her title as queen. He sends her back to the harem just as a common concubine. So this happens after that. Now, where does it happen? Then the king's attendants who served him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. Let the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather every beautiful young virgin to the city of Susa, to the harem, into the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let their cosmetics be given them. Then let the young lady who pleases the king be queen in place of Vashti, and the matter pleased the king, and he did accordingly. Chapter 1 happens in the third year of King Ahasuerus' reign. And we know from this chapter that Esther becomes queen in the seventh year. So the time this is happening is, in, is three years after the events of chapter 1. And the place it's happening is Susa, the capital of the Persian Empire. Susa is is uh, in what is now southwestern Iran. It was a, a beautiful city. It was a garden city. It was full of, of orchards and flowers, and it was surrounded by streams and mountains. It was a city fit for a king. The only problem, it was unbearably hot for a couple of months every summer, so they would, they would move the city, the capital of Persia, up into the hills. So that's the setting. This is three years after chapter one, and it all happens in Susa. Um, Let's look at the characters. Now, when you look at Bible characters, you need to remember that the Bible only tells you what you need to know to get God's uh, message here. Uh, and so the Bible very rarely describes, for example, what someone looks like. And so if it does, that's really important for the, the uh, story. It makes a big thing out of names, what people's names mean. And it rarely makes moralistic judgments upon what people do. It more just tells what they did and lets the reader decide what they think about what they did. Now, there are three main characters in chapter 2. The first is King Ahasuerus. Now, Ahasuerus is not a name. It's a title like Kaiser or Tsar. And this Ahasuerus is probably Xerxes I, who was the fourth king of Persia. Um, it has been an eventful three years since Vashti was deposed. This is when uh, Xerxes led the armies of Persia on an ill-fated attempt to invade uh, Europe. You remember the 300 Spartans who, who stopped the Persians until the armies of Greece could be mobilized? Well, that's when this happens. So Xerxes has now experienced the first defeat the Persian army has ever known. And so he and the army go back to Susa, and he's feeling down. 
And that's why he says after three years, he remembers Vashti. Why does he remember Vashti after three years? Well, I think she was the only one he could confide in. Her companionship was a great comfort to him. He doesn't miss the sex. He's got 400 concubines. But he misses having one person in the government that he can confide in, and that's why he finds himself uh, missing her here. He thinks of Vashti at this point, three years later. But he can't restore her, remember, because his advisors who advised him to, to uh, divorce her made it a matter of law. And the king cannot violate the law, so he can't bring Vashti back. When his advisors see him missing her, they come up with this idea for the Persian version of Bachelorette. Let's bring all the beautiful women of the kingdom to Susa, and we'll have a beauty contest. And you can sleep with each one and decide which will be the new queen. And this shows how shallow Xerxes is. Because he, because he misses Vashti's companionship, he thinks he can find a new queen by sleeping with a bunch of women and picking the one he likes best. So he is a sensual man. He is, a, he is a, he's an idiot. Um, and, and certainly not the kind of man any reasonable woman would ever marry. So that's, that's King Xerxes. He's the first. Now, the, the second main character in the story is Mordecai. Let's read about him. Now, there was at the citadel in Susa a Jew whose name was Mordecai. And the word Mordecai is a Persian name. It comes from probably the god Marduk of the Babylonians. It means Marduk was their lord. But even though he has a Persian name, it turns out he's a Jewish man. The son of Jair, the son of Shemaiah, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, meaning from the tribe of Benjamin, Kish, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives who had been exiled with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. So Mordecai is the descendant. His great-grandfather was named Kish, and he was taken by Nebuchadnezzar with a whole bunch of Jews into captivity in Babylon before Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians. For 900 years since the book of Deuteronomy, God had warned that if Israel worships idols instead of the God who has delivered them, they will lose the promised land. They will be sent into exile. And that warning is finally fulfilled when the Babylonians come, they destroy Jerusalem, they take the Jews into captivity in, in Babylon. Now, 50 years before Mordecai, the Babylonians are conquered by the Persians. And King Cyrus issues a decree that any Jew that wants to return to their homeland may. And a few Jews go back. And we know their stories from books like Nehemiah and Ezra and Haggai and Zechariah. But there's a whole bunch of Jews who don't return because it's 900 miles. And the economy of Israel is in shambles. 
And by this time, the Jews, many of the Jews have become wealthy merchants, become government officials, and so they choose the comfort of living among the pagans in exile rather than going back to their homeland, even though their homeland is where God said he would bring them. It's where he's sending all of his prophets. It's where he is acting. And so these Jews in Babylon begin to migrate all over the, the Mediterranean world. Mordecai is one of those who migrates up into Susa, the capital of of uh, Iran, the capital of Persia at that time. And so by the time of Jesus, there are Jews all around the Mediterranean. In fact, there are more Jews living outside of Israel than inside Israel. And as you might expect, most of the Jews of the dispersion are pretty lukewarm about about their Judaism. They've learned to go along, to get along. They take the, the pagan names of their culture as their names so they don't stand out. And there's no evidence that Mordecai is any different than the rest of them. So Mordecai, as far as we can see, we're not going to read in here, Mordecai, as far as we can see, is just your typical exile Jew who has freely chosen to live among the Persians than to go back to the promised land. Now, the third character is Esther. He was bringing up Hadassah, which is her Jewish name. That is, Esther is uncle's daughter. The exiled Jews had two names. They had their Jewish name, and they had their Persian name. And Esther is this gal's Persian name. It comes from the... Uh, Babylonian god Ishtar, because apparently the Jews commonly took the names of the gods of their culture as the name they would use when they were out in public, which shows they, they weren't really taking a strong stand for the god of, of Israel. Now, it was his uncle's daughter, for she had no father or mother. Esther is an orphan. And Mordecai is her cousin, older, and has acted as a parent for her. Now, the young lady was beautiful of form and face. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. As we said, physical appearance is rarely spoken of in the Bible. And so when the Bible tells what somebody looked, that is going to play a key part in the story. So what do you know about Esther? Esther's a gorgeous woman. That's all you know, okay? So it came about when the command and decree of the king were heard, and many young ladies were gathered to the citadel of Susa into the custody of Haggai, that's the eunuch that was in charge of the harem, that Esther was taken to the king's palace into the custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. Now the young lion, young, I'm sorry, the young lady pleased him and found favor with him. So we quickly provided her with co her cosmetics and food and gave her seven choice maids from the king's palace and transferred her and her maids to the best place in the harem. Esther did not make known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them known. We, we don't know why Mordecai tells Esther 
not to tell anyone she's a Jew. Maybe it's to protect her life, though he made no secret of the fact that he was Jewish. Maybe it was because it would give her a better chance to become queen. We don't know. We just know that, that at this point, Esther is a secret service Jew, and nobody knows that she's Jewish. Now, it's easy to read this story and see Esther as the victim, right? To see poor Esther, she's drafted into Bachelorette, and uh, she has no choice. However, in the exile books, there are many examples of Jews who took a stand to be faithful to the God of Israel, even though it would cost them their career and, and possibly even their life. When Daniel is a young man and drafted into the Babylonian government to be trained as an official, when he has served food that was unlawful for Jews to eat, Daniel says, excuse me, I can't eat this even though it may mean the end of his career or maybe even his life. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, three other young Jewish men who were being trained to be officials in the Babylonian government, refused to worship the image of Nebuchadnezzar that's put up, they're thrown into a furnace from which God delivers them. When the Persians take over and Darius, Xerxes' dad, makes a decree that you can't pray to anybody but me for a month. Daniel keeps praying to God publicly and is thrown into the lion's den. Nehemiah, who, when he hears uh, of the destruction of Jerusalem and how bad a shape the city of his fathers is in, is so sad that in his job as the... Um, wine steward of the king of Persia is sad in his presence, which was illegal. You couldn't be sad in the presence of the king. Otherwise, he'd think you were plotting against him. The king says, why are you sad? Nehemiah's honest. He says, well, my, my father's city is, is destroyed. And by the way, I would like you to send me there to rebuild it and, and pay for everything. And the king does. So you have plenty of examples in the exile books of Jews who take a clear stand with the God of Israel. Not the case with Mordecai and Esther. And so I, just reading into this, I tend to think that Mordecai and Esther are not particularly righteous people or faithful people. They are just typical of the Jews who lived in exile. Every day, Mordecai walked back and forth in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she fared. There's two harems. One is the harem of the, the virgins. The other is the harem of the concubines. And when Esther is taken with all these other young women into the harem of the virgins, Mordecai can no longer talk to her, but he loves her. He continues to hang around the temple trying to talk to any servant who can give him some information. Setting characters. Now let's look at the plot and what actually happens and how this fits in to the overall plot of Esther. The story begins with how this beauty contest was going to be conducted. Now when the turn of each young lady came to go into King Ahasuerus, at the end of her 12 months under the regulations for the women, 
For the days of their beautification were completed as follows, six months with oil of myrrh, six months with spices and cosmetics for women. The young lady would go to the king in this way. Anything that she desired was given to her, take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and the morning she would return to the second harem, that's the harem of the concubines, to the custody of, your guess as good as mine, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. So these women each undergo 12 months of beauty treatment. And that's not for their benefit, by the way. That's for the king's benefit. And then when they get their night, they can take anything they want to enhance their desirability before the king. Maybe take some musical instruments or some dancing monkeys or um, jewelry. Who knows? They can take anything they want, anything that will make an impression on the king. Uh, that's the way. Let's see what happens with, with, uh, with Esther here. She would not again go to the king unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. Now, when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter, came to go to the king, she did not request anything except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, advised. Haggai has shown great favor to Esther, as we've seen. He gives her the most best food, the best servants, the best apartment. So she relies on him into what she should take in her one night with the king. And apparently, he believes that it's her beauty is her greatest strength, so take nothing that will distract the king from your beauty. And as a result, Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus, to his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tebeth in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther, more than all the women, and she found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. So in the plot of Esther, chapter 2 explains how this Jewish orphan becomes queen of Persia after chapter 1, Queen Vashti, is deposed. And of course, it explains how she is in a position when Israel is, is threatened with genocide to make a difference. Now, there's, there's one other plot twist here that's coming up that's important to, to understand from chapter 2. Then the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his princes and his servants. He also made a holiday for the provinces and gave gifts according to the king's bounty. When the virgins were gathered together the second time. Now, if you read 12 commentaries on Esther, you'll find 13 opinions of what that means. Nobody knows. What, what, I think it means that after Esther became queen for several years, the king thought back, you know, that beauty contest was a great idea. We ought to do that again. Not to find a queen, but just for his own amusement, and which shows you the kind of guy he was. And anyway, I think that's what's happening. Anyway, Esther's been queen for a while. Then Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Now, the gate of the city or the gate of the palace was, was where official business was transacted. You see that all the way through the Old Testament. So Mordecai apparently is, is some kind of minor dignitary. 
And so he is there at the king's gate among the king's other servants. Esther had not yet made known her kindred or her people, even as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther did what Mordecai told her as she had done when under his care. Even though she's queen, she still hasn't let anyone know of her relationship with Mordecai or the fact that she is a Jew. In those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's officials from those who guarded the door, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. But the plot became known to Mordecai, and he told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. Now when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged on a gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. Mordecai overhears this plot to assassinate the king, which was very common back there. Kings were always getting assassinated. He has no love for Xerxes, but he knows if Xerxes is killed, Esther as the queen will probably be killed too. So he gets word to Esther. Esther tells Xerxes. Xerxes investigates, finds out it's true, executes these guys, has recorded the service that Mordecai has done to him, and promptly forgets it. And yet this is going to be the turning point in the book in chapters to come. So that's how that fits into the plot. So chapter one is why Xerxes needs a queen. Chapter 2 is how a young Jewish orphan becomes that queen, and that will lead into the rest of the story of how this young Jewish orphan is used by God to deliver all the Jews in the world from genocide. Now, that's the setting. That's the characters. That's the plot. What lessons can we draw from this? Well, I'd like to suggest three lessons from this passage that we can draw. And the first is that God works through ordinary means. Remember, the name of God is never mentioned in the whole book of Esther. Because in Deuteronomy, God said that when I send you into exile, I will hide my face from you. God is still sending prophets to Israel, but he is invisible to those in the dispersion. Yet that doesn't mean he's not at work because you can see his hand clearly throughout the book of Esther through circumstances, through one event that leads to another event, through reversals of fortune. And that's how he's still at work today. I think it's easy for Christians to think that God is only at work where something miraculous takes place, something supernatural. And yet God is at work all the time in every place. Proverbs 16.4 says, God has made everything for his purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. Proverbs 16.33 says, the lot is cast in the lap. That's kind of like throwing dice. Yet it's every decision is from the Lord. That means because God rules over all creation, there are no accidents. There is nothing, no such thing as chance. That God controls everything to move his plan along. And we can all see that in our lives if we look at our life through the rearview mirror. 
Because we all have had things happen which at the time seemed bad that turned out to be good. We've all had things happen that seemed to be just a chance meeting or conversation which turned out to have a major impact on the direction of our lives, haven't we? That we can see how God has worked in our lives when we look backwards. We can't see it looking forward or we can't look at it right now, but we can see it looking backward. And that's why I think 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. One of the great antidotes I found to worry and anxiety is to thank God for everything that happens because what it does, it reminds you that God is at work. God is in control. And what may look bad or what may just look insignificant may turn out to be the greatest blessing in your life. God works through ordinary means. God is at work in your life right now, whether you see it or not. The more you start giving thanks, the more you'll see it through the eyes of faith. Second lesson, God works through ordinary people. I used to think to be used by God, you had to be extraordinarily godly that you had to be a righteous person. And so I was surprised that all the bad, ordinary, evil people that God seemed to use. And that puzzled me until I read the book of Esther. And I saw how God uses two very ordinary, compromised Jews to save his entire nation. God works through ordinary people because that's all that are available. When you look at who God uses in the Bible, they all have clay feet, don't they? Abraham was a liar. Isaac was Mr. Passivity. Jacob was a manipulator. Moses had an anger problem his whole life. Um, Gideon was a coward. Samson was an idiot. David was an adulterer. And don't even start with the disciples. And yet because they chose to believe God and stepped out on faith, God used them. God has always worked through ordinary people who will believe him. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't put away your sin. Your sin will still destroy you and the people around you. But God will use you if you just make yourself available. It's not your ability that he wants. It's your availability that he wants. And so if you'll just take the opportunities he gives you to do good, to love your neighbor, and to tell people about him, you'll be amazed at how he uses you. God will use anyone who will, makes themselves available to be used. He works through ordinary people. We're all pretty ordinary, aren't we? So we qualify. Now the big lesson here, and we'll end with this, is that God is always the hero. Esther is not the hero of this book. And there are no heroes in the Bible except for God. In Jeremiah 31, 36, God says, if the created order departs, that is, if the universe stops working on the laws I've put into it, if there stops being day and night, if gravity ceases to be, then Israel will cease to be a nation before me. 
God promises that Israel will always be a nation as long as this world endures. He'll see to it. And so here in one of the, the first great threats to the nation of Israel, where every Jew is going to be threatened with extinction, God is at work. He's faithful even when we're faithless. And he saves all these Jews, the faithful ones and the unfaithful ones, because he's the hero of the Bible. As I said before, the Bible is a rescue story. It's about how God rescues people and the creation from the evil and death that invaded the world when Adam and Eve rebelled against God. And throughout the Old Testament, God keeps promising to send a human Savior, someone who will undo the damage that Adam and Eve did. And he gives hundreds of signs of how to recognize this Savior. In the New Testament, those promises are fulfilled. The Son of God becomes a human being to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He lives the life we fail to live so that God can credit his perfect record to those who put their faith in him. He dies the death we deserve to die, bearing the punishment for our sins on the cross so that God can forgive us. He rises from the dead, defeating death in our behalf so that we can live eternally, which is what God originally intended. Jesus is the hero of the story. We're not saved by what we do. We're saved by trusting in what he has done for us. Romans 10.9 says, Whoever, if that if you will confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord is not just kind of mouthing the words, okay, Jesus is Lord. But it's believing that Jesus is God, and because he is God, he has a better plan for my life than my plan. That all of my problems come from my independence from God from wanting to do what I want to do rather than wanting to do what Jesus wants me to do. And so becoming a Christian is putting my faith in Jesus as my Savior who gives me God's forgiveness and God's righteousness when I put my faith in him and then trusting him to be my Lord and living by faith in his will rather than exerting my will, which is what the Bible calls repentance. That's what a Christian is a person who has believed in Christ as Savior and follows him as Lord. And if you've never done that, you can do that today. Jesus says in Revelation 3, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him. Now, if you open your heart to Jesus, what does Jesus promise to do? He'll come in. Does he come in the first time you ask him or the hundredth time you ask him? Come on, math math whizzes. 
When does he come in? The first time. So you don't have to ask him more than once, right? I asked him about 30 times until, until a Christian sat down to me and said, no, he came in the first time. Just stop asking, start trusting. And that was when I really became a Christian. If you want a relationship with Christ, if you want to be forgiven and be united with God through Jesus, just open that door. Say, Jesus, I believe you're my Savior. I believe you're my Lord. Come into my heart as you promised and make me the person you want me to be. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this perplexing book of Esther. Thank you for its encouragement that you can use us just like you used Esther and Mordecai. And for the reminder that you are the real hero of our lives and the real hero of the Bible. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.